technologies that are dominating today, they're dominating because they're able to deliver force faster, harder, stronger, smarter. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse. The lowbrow or, or the, the, the historic colloquial term is hodl, right? Hold on for dear life or just hodl or save, whatever. And the highbrow term would be adopt as a treasury reserve asset. Hey guys, so as you learned uh, by watching the What Is Money show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the world today. And so this begs the question, which I'm often asked, how does one build their Bitcoin position? And the strategy really is simple. I suggest first you decide on an initial portfolio percentage allocation and a target portfolio percentage allocation. Go ahead and establish the initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging towards your target portfolio uh, percentage. And you can also complement this by buying Bitcoin price dips to further increase that position and reduce your cost basis. And finally, I suggest to everyone to take custody of their Bitcoin, to move all of their Bitcoin into self-sovereign custody, because again, Bitcoin left on an exchange is not Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin IOU. And for those of you living in the US, there's no better choice than Swan Bitcoin to do all of the above. So Swan lets you set up automatic recurring buys for Bitcoin, also lets you facilitate one-time buys for, for buying price dips. And finally, they let you do, set up automatic recurring withdrawals into cold storage, which is a really big deal. And all of this they provide at the lowest fees in the business, uh, approximately 0.99% per year for weekly buys of $50 or more, which is about 60, I'm sorry, 70 to 80% less than Coinbase by comparison. And the best part, Swan is a Bitcoin focused education first company. Uh, they, they publish great content on their Swan Signal Live podcast. Uh, they publish a lot of content in their newsletter and website. And their, their team is just the absolute dream team of Bitcoin. Uh, I would say check out their roster. It's growing every day, but, but it's a super impressive group of individuals. And so with that, I would highly recommend you check out swanbitcoin.com backslash breedlove. You get $10 in free Bitcoin for signing up. Um, and it lets you stack sats with myself and the rest of uh, the Swan team as we continue the fight to restore freedom truth and virtue in the world through Bitcoin. All right, thanks. Hey guys, welcome back to episode four of the What Is Money show. Uh, we're coming back today with part four of the Sailor series. Um, and this is the first part of day two. So Sailor and I spent two days recording uh, we did about 10 and a half hours in total. So episode four represents the first episode in day two. And uh, if you haven't seen episodes one through three yet, I highly recommend you go and check those out. 
Uh, we built a lot of foundational material there that um, just gets referenced back to going forward. So I think it's really important. In episodes one through three, we covered the Stone Ages, the Iron Ages, we went into the Dark Ages, and we came forward into the Steel and the Industrial Age. And now, today, we're getting into the good stuff. Bitcoin theory, the digital age, um, how money and economics is changing once again uh, based on the, these new and radical innovations we see in the world today. So today we're going to learn about how Bitcoin is the first true digital monetary system in world history. Um, we're also going to hear Sailor's question, uh, I'm sorry, Sailor's answer to that all-important question, what is money? And he has a really, really good answer I think you're going to dig. And uh, we're going to get into a bit of the economic principles underlying commodities and their use as money and why commodities make a really bad form of money, actually. Um, Sailor lays out a really good case for, for commodity money being kind of a self-defeating endeavor. And then finally, um, we're going to start looking at Bitcoin as the ultimate means of wealth settlement and preservation. Um, it's as Sailor refers to it, is the first closed loop or closed source energy system we've ever had. Um, so I don't want to spoil anything. This episode is really good. Um, for me, this is when a lot of the light bulbs started to go off and started to have a lot of those little mini epiphanies during our conversation, which you might see me uh, having as we engage. So I hope you like this. Um, it's a really good episode and uh, see you again soon. Hey everyone, welcome back to the What is Money show. I'm your host, Robert Breedlove, and I'm sitting down today with Michael Saylor as we dive into part two of uh, this deep conversation involving history, technology, commerce, economics, money, um, really covering a, a, a broad, broad spectrum of topics today. And um, Today's the good day because we're getting into the good stuff with Bitcoin theory uh, as the first digital monetary system. Michael, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Robert. I'm excited about this. So we're going to talk about Bitcoin theory. Bitcoin theory. It's a, a field you wouldn't have thought you would have heard about even five years ago. Well, um, you know... When I think of Bitcoin, I think this is the first digital monetary system in the history of the world. Perhaps the first, we've tried others, they just didn't work. This is the first one that's perfected, that's functioning. It's the first one to, to cross $100 billion in market cap, and now it's about $200 billion in market cap. $200 billion means $200 billion of monetary energy. And if I look at all of the other great digital networks, Apple, Google, Facebook, when they cross $100 billion of monetary energy, then that's a legitimizing step. Generally, when they get there, 95% or more of the investment community doesn't believe in them. Sometimes 99% doesn't believe in them, but they're too big to fail. They're, they're fires that have been unleashed into the society and they're burning and the the effect is exothermal it's 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 what we have in each of these networks is 
we have the collapse, a dematerialization of some product or service or virtue or some ineffable quality, be it friendship or mobile devices or information. It's collapsing into a lower energy state. And as it collapses into a lower energy state, huge amounts of energy in the form of profit, cash flow, and value get given off. Apple can ship a, a, a better a better camera to a billion people overnight for a nickel. Right, Facebook right. can improve the way that you communicate to your loved ones overnight for a nickel. And Google can package the Library of Alexandria in the palm of your hand and ship it to a billion people overnight for a nickel. And when, when you have these massive de- dematerializations of value and they get on a network with a network effect, it's almost like what, where you see a crystallizing structure where you've got an amorphous substance and as it crystallizes, we go from steam to water to ice. Collapses, gives off energy. And what, what Bitcoin is, is it's that first digital monetary network, digital monetary system. It's collapsing into a, a much more efficient form. It's giving off energy. And... Um, that just brings us back to this entire subject of how important is energy to the human race? Okay. Because- let me ask you, sorry, let me ask a question yeah. there. There's a chart with phase transitions of say water, of going from ice to water to steam as its temperature increases. And it shows increases in temperature. And then when it actually goes into the phase transition, it flatlines. So it's like all that energy is being reallocated to, I guess, changing the, stru- the molecular structure for the next state. Then the, the temperature starts to increase again as it goes into water and it flatlines again before it goes into steam. So I guess what you're getting at is that energy becomes transmuted into the next state before it can start to give off energy in the form of profit, productivity. It's, it's giving back economic substance, I guess, to its users. Um, I think that's sort of the analogy you're drawing there. It's yeah, it's a it's a wild thing when when all the monetary energy leaps from gold to Bitcoin, or when it leaps from fiat to Bitcoin. There's this phase transition, and uh, and and um, we see it uh, throughout all all areas of science. But right now, this is this is uh, just the first time in human history that we see uh, this creation of a, a pure digital monetary network. And I, I want to replace monetary network with energy network because monetary uh, energy is energy, and money is energy. In fact, money is the highest form of energy. So if we ask the question, what is money? Money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Hmm. So if I look back through time, human beings as a species prosper by channeling energy. And when we mastered fire, we channeled chemical energy. And when we mastered missiles, we channel kinetic energy. And when we master water and hydraulics, we're actually channeling gravitational energy. The idea of an aqueduct is, well, I'm using gravity to move water 70 miles. 
or I'm running a water wheel, or I'm floating a two-ton uh, block in the water, and the gravity's pushing down on the water, and the water is pushing up. And when I dam a stream and I generate hydro energy, well, that's that's gravity being converted energy. But if I dam the stream to divert a bunch of fish into my pond, I'm still using gravity. Now, I, I can channel gravity by dumping a bunch of rocks on your head, but it's not nearly so easy to create a river of rocks as it is to actually just tap into a river of water. And, uh, and so the mastery of fire and water is the mastery of, of chemical energy, gravitational energy, eventually thermal in in energy. And, and that, in the modern era, morphed into the, the mastery of electrical en energy and atomic energy. And of course, of course, there's conservation of energy. And when we look at all of these energy networks, I mean, look, 100 guys with bows and arrows are an energy network, right? I'm, I'm moving kinetic energy from this side of the battlefield to that side of the battlefield. And, and um, a civilization at the mouth of a river with cities up and down the river, right, is sitting on an energy network, right? Just like the Aegean and the Greek civilization was sitting at the middle of an energy network and they were using gravitational energy to, to uh, you know, and by wind energy, right? Another form of energy right. with, between sails and gravity. You know, I, I'm taking advantage of these energies. So the theme is humans prosper by channeling energy. Yeah. Now, what's the most efficient energy network in the history of the world? Well, it's about to be Bitcoin um, because the challenge of humans, humanity is how do I store energy and transmit energy across time and space and domain. And by domain, I mean perhaps governmental domain. Like how do I move my energy from New York to Tokyo? And this becomes an interesting question, right? Let's say, let's take a, a typical power grid. Well, I generate uh, power, I channel chemical energy into electrical energy. I lose like 35% of the energy in the coal or in the fossil fuel, when it gets onto the grid, I move it over a high voltage line and, it, and I can move it up to about 500 miles and I lose 2% of the energy. Mm -hmm. Now it has, to go, it has to get stepped down to 240 volts or lower voltage even to get into your house. I lose, as, as the voltage steps down, I lose more energy. It's about a 4% loss. I could, if I had pure energy at the power plant, I'm going to lose 6% of the energy to put it into your house 250 miles away. I can't send it 2,000 miles away. I just can't. I can't send it 10,000 miles away. Energy will not move from New York to Tokyo, but I can do New York to Schenectady. Now, when it gets into your house, you have to use it immediately. You can't store it. So let's say I wanted to store it. I need a battery. Well, the absence of a battery prevents a mechanism. Uh, the mobile wave is a function of lithium ion batteries in the palm of your hand. No, no lithium ion battery, no smartphone. Now, we're, we're working with modern batteries, you know, Tesla. All, it's all about the battery, right? <laughs> and, uh, and Elon Musk has really driven battery technology. So let's say I put a battery in your house and you pull energy into your house. Well, you've lost 
Now, a typical battery, a good one, is going to lose 2% per month. Okay, that means you're going to lose 24% of your energy a year. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like 24% inflation a year. Yeah. It sounds, you know, it sounds like hyperinflation. It could get worse, right? Hyperinflation oh. is 100% inflation here. Let's say that I have a battery which loses 20% of my power a year. Well, my half-life on my energy that I pulled off the plant is three and a half years in 10 years, right? Yeah. I'm up to 12.5% of my energy. So the entire civilization is based upon electric power grids and networks, and yet it's not that good. I mean, you really can't store that much power. Anybody that ever put their computer, they charged it and left the computer for a month or two months, and you whipped it open. It's like, it's drained. It's dead, yeah. Okay, so now, let's say I want to take $100 million. By the way, I can take $100 million of money, and I can buy $100 million of electricity in New York. And I can distribute it to 10 million people in New York, as long as they use it today. But, it, you know, so, so if they don't use it today, it starts to bleed out. And, we're, and so this is, this is uh, the loss on the network. Right. Now, and in a monetary sense, we would say that energy really lacks durability, right? And I think this is important to you to tie this back to money is that gold itself, to your point, was an energy network, right? It was whatever productivity couldn't be allocated towards something more economic, we would go and mine gold, such that gold became this claim on savings of humanity, which is what money is. And those savings themselves are the result of all our collective energy utilization up until that point, right? We've been tra transitioning energy into capital and then gold or money becomes the network that commands that capital. And then I, what I think is interesting too is that the scarcity of the gold actually reflects the scarcity of the energy, right? So it maps onto it in a way. A brilliant insight. And now let's play a thought experiment. Let's take our $100 million worth of monetary energy and let's put it in a, a power network and then uh, that runs on copper. And then let's put it into a gold network. If I put it into a copper energy network, I have a 24% bleed rate per year by the time it gets to the battery. I lose 6% and I can't get it more than 500 miles. Okay, so that it's a very short-term, short-duration, here and now energy network. Let's put it into a gold network. I put $100 million into gold. Now I can move that $100 million of gold 100 miles. Would I lose 6%? No, probably not 6%, right? I, I could probably lose 100, move $100 million of gold 100 miles for $10,000 to $100,000, depending upon how much security I need. So we're talking about... 10 basis points instead of 600 basis points of loss, 10 basis points. So gold is a more efficient way to move large amounts of energy 
short periods of time or short distances. What if I want to move $100 million worth of gold 10,000 miles? Well, that's about 3,000 pounds of gold, like one and a half tons. So I put it on a global express, cost $10,000 an hour. I put some dudes with guns on it. I fly 16, 18 hours around the world. That's about $180,000 plus another 70,000, 250,000. If I have to fly the plane back, let's just assume I don't. It's 250,000. So now, now we're up to like 25 basis points, 0.25% is the cost to move it around the world once, okay? So, so that's okay. Now, what if I wanna deliver $100 million of gold 100 years into the future? Oh, what if I want to deliver $100 million of, of energy 100 years in the future on um, copper and batteries? Well, my half-life is at 24%, a 2% bleed a month, right? My half-life is three and a half years. It's gone completely. And everybody with any common sense knows if you put your laptop charge in your attic for 100 years, it will not be charged in 100 years. Right, you cannot right. store electricity on a copper network or a lithium-ion battery. It's no good. I put it in gold, put it in a vault. Okay. So let's say I put it in a vault in JP Morgan. And I put it in a vault in JP Morgan in 1900 in the United States of America. And the United States is the most successful country in the 21st, 20th century. We win every war. And J.P. Morgan remains as a bank, and the vault is, and New York remains. In that case, assuming a 2% mining rate, so assuming a stock to flow of 50 and miners mine 2% more gold a year, the half-life of a gold battery is 35 years. Mm -hmm. I go from 100 million to 50 million in 35 years to 25 million in 70 years to about 12 and a half million in 100 years. So I've, de I've depleted my gold battery 87% if the United States wins every war. Right. And if JP Morgan is in a corrupt institution and doesn't fail, and if no one drops a nuclear bomb on New York City. Right. If so then, things don't happen, then I will get 12% of my money back. So in addition to betting on gold, right, which is governed by natural law, you're also assuming this counterparty risk in the form of the US government, in the form of JP Morgan. You have to bet on these instability in the geopolitical landscape as well, right? Because the gold has to be secured and it has to be secured by institutions. What, what, what if you put $100 million worth of gold into a bank in Frankfurt in 1900? What if you put it in, in uh, a, the, the largest bank in Japan in Tokyo in 1900? Mm -hmm. Name, name a city you could have, and a bank you could have put it in in 1900 that would still be there in the year 2000. It's a short list, by the way. Yeah. London, Switzerland, you know, Zurich, New York. You would have failed in Paris, Berlin, anywhere in Eastern Europe. You would have failed in Moscow. You would have lost it all in Beijing. You would have lost yeah. it in Tokyo. You would have lost it all anywhere south of the Rio Grande. Yeah, 
And in the U.S.? Lost it everywhere in Africa. Possibly would Executive Order 6102 have impacted you in the U.S.? And you would have lost it in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so isn't it ironic? Okay. So can't we reduce it down to maybe Switzerland? Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Like, I, I, it's an interesting exercise for the reader. But the counterparty risk on gold is, uh, is at the municipal level, the state level, the federal level, and the corporate level. And that's, and, and over a lot, there's a phrase, right? Over a long enough timeline, the mortality rate is 100%. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the long run, we're all dead, right? Sort of, I think Keynes may have said that. He said it, Robert Heinlein yeah. wrote a book called Lifeline, and he said, over a long enough timeline, the mortality rate is 100%. Yeah. Okay. And so... In this particular case, back to our gold network. We, we have a gold network and we want to move money. So I put $100 million in gold and I want to move it around. Well, it's 25 basis points every time I move it around the world. If I move it once a quarter, it's 1% bleed a year if I move it once a quarter. Okay. If I mine it, it's 2% bleed a year. That gets me to 3% bleed a year. Divide that into 70 in every 22 years. That's the half-life of gold. Energy on a gold network has a half-life of 22 years at best. When you throw in the counterparty risk and the need to move it around, let's just assume we're moving it around so we don't lose it. You're just down to now the, the issue of technology and commodity risk. And... This is an important point. Gold is the king of commodities. Gold is the, is the greatest of all human commodities. But my, my first job at DuPont was I built computer simulations of commodities and specialty chemical networks. And let me tell you what people in that business think. They think commodity is a dirty word. The first thing I learned is commodity is awful. Nobody wants to be in a commodity business. And here's the reason commodities are awful. If I actually create um, a factory that creates a commodity, say gasoline, the only thing it can do is create gasoline. If I invest $10 billion into a gasoline refinery, my fixed costs are $10 billion. The, uh, the ideal rational price for me to make a profit, call it $4 a, a gallon, but my variable cost is $1.50 a gallon because I've got all these billions of dollars in the factory. What happens is when I create commodity refineries, when the price goes below the profit, the profitable point, I, I can't do it. I will still keep running the factory because I've got a variable margin. I'm generating cash flow, even though I'm driving the price down for everybody else in the business. So it's possible in a commodity business for every single producer to be losing money and for their, their, them to all be acting irrationally and they're all pumping out the commodity, be it silver. If you're a gold miner, what can you do other than mine gold? Right. Once I've gone and I've invested $100 billion in mining gold, if the price of gold is cut in half, but my variable cost is $400 an ounce and it's $800 an ounce, 
I'm mining gold and selling it at $800 an ounce. I'm selling it at $700 an ounce. I'm selling it at 600. When it gets to 500, I'm selling it because the market is not rational. I can't transmute my $100 billion of gold mining capital into Google stock. Right, the switching costs are too high. It's just not possible. And, and by the way, maybe I've been captured by the government. Like maybe, mm. maybe a certain government wants to mine gold. Maybe, uh, maybe I can't legally stop even if I wanted to stop. So when you have a commodity business where people have specialized capital and they make those investments, what happens over time everywhere, in every industry, in every commodity, in the history of the world, is the producers overproduce the commodity because in the phrase of Hotel California, you can check in anytime you want. You can <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a one-way route. Right. You go in, you can't get out. <clears throat> so as and so that takes us to this real issue of gold or the real risk of gold, which is gold price goes up by a factor of 10 capital gets attracted into commodity production. It's a feedback. People produce more. Gold price comes down. People keep producing to try to recover their cash flows. Lots of intelligent people become desperate. When men are desperate, they invent new techniques to produce more gold. They keep producing because they don't have a choice. They will produce down until the variable cost equals the price then they will keep producing below variable cost because it's possible that they're in a situation where, where uh, they can uh, lay off, the, for example, a government that takes ownership of a gold mine will produce below variable cost in order to maintain jobs. We'll subsidize it, yeah. Where does this happen? Uh, automobiles and yeah. airlines. This is why you don't ever want to be a budget airline because a government will operate airline flights at a variable cost loss in order to avoid shutting down the, I mean, the airline, right? If you're Singapore and you turn off the airlines because they're not profitable, you turned off your bridge to the world. You, you know, the politicians will run the airline below variable cost. If I want to keep jobs and how many countries want to project jobs? If I want to project jobs, I will produce something below the variable cost and sell it below the variable cost. We do that with anything that is politically uh, charged. When a government decides education, healthcare, transportation, automobiles, local manufacturing, security, defense. Defense is a great example of something that we produce, right. whether we like it or not. You know, at a cost that's higher than potentially the value and use of it. And we can't stop. It creates this industrial complex. So I think a good, sorry to catch up, just a good point there that I think reinforces your earlier point too. <clears throat> you said that gold was the greatest commodity in history. And I think the point there is that it is the greatest commodity in history because it, it commands human time or commands savings. It commands the collective output of capital that humanity's ever created, right? So in that way, it's kind of like the smartest form of energy because human beings, our, our ingenuity, our time, 
our, our ability to see the world. We are the greatest form of economic energy in the world, right? And gold is the, the instrument that commands that energy. For thousands of years, it was, it was the, the best commodity that we could produce to store our energy in. Like par partly it was hard, but it's not the hardest thing to produce. I think there are other commodities that are harder to produce, but it was the best combination of being hard and then being durable and being right. non toxic right? There are toxic things that kill us. Yeah. You know, there are things that aren't durable, that are unstable. Like I, I mean, like, I'm sure we figured out how to produce gold before we figured out how to produce uranium or polonium. Or right. Something. But so there's other okay. stuff. And the, the other, is, the other, the other, the, sorry, the other important piece too is that gold is indestructible, right? Such that every ounce we ever mined is pretty much still part of the extant supply. I think it's two Olympic-sized swimming pools of gold that you we want, never produce. You want stability, right? It takes us back to like why why Marjorie Merriweather Post was the richest woman in the world because Post cereal was starch that was stable in a right. box for a year. Right, right, stability at room temperature. Yeah. Like Coca-Cola is stable at room temperature in a can. And That's a great analogy. Is stable energy. So yeah, it's energy, but nonetheless, it's a commodity. And you know what they call a business when it's been totally wrecked? They call it commoditized. Right. The <laughs> profit margins. Yeah. Yeah. And so every business person forever has always strived to avoid being commoditized. That's, that's the origin of branding, right? We branded sugar water. We branded Gucci bags. We branded right. everything. Everybody, everybody, we patent things. We brand things because we want to avoid the inevitable result, the result. The result is as soon as something is commoditized and, and open to the public and anybody can produce it, its value goes not it goes to the variable cost of production and then it goes yeah. below. Right. For example, Apple Computer worth two trillion dollars today, Google worth more than a trillion, Facebook, these are valuable networks, but are they the most valuable networks? No, they're not the most valuable networks. To, to humanity, they're the most valuable non-commoditized networks. Because if I go to New York City and I pull the plug on Google, it's inconvenient. But if I go to New York City and I pull the plug on the power company, it's deadly. Right. If I cut off your power and your water, right, or even turn off the bridge, people die. Yeah. If I turn off Google, Facebook, and Apple, nobody in New York City is going to die, right? And so people forget this. And this is, this is the danger, by the way, of putting all your wealth. This is the danger of storing your wealth in Apple stock. If you think, but the world thinks Apple, Google, and Facebook, big tech, they're a store of value. And in, you know, post-pandemic, everybody surged into the NASDAQ 5, and the NASDAQ, because they have big tech equity, this is a store of value. I'll be safe here. Well, you'll be safe there for a year or two years. But, you know, General Electric and General Motors were once, 
you know, and Standard Oil, they were the most important networks on earth and they changed humanity a lot more than Google, Apple and Facebook did. You know, and, and you wanna change your life, try to go a week without electricity and see if, if there aren't riots, murders, mayhem, and it, and it comes to the end. And so people don't ask the question that, they don't ask, why is it that I get my electricity for nothing? Why do I get my water for nothing? Because you try, try to go three days without water, three days without electricity, and you see what that's like. And the answer is because those two things got declared as public utilities. Right. They're so important that nobody could, could have a monopoly on it, right? As soon as, as soon as Standard Oil became so instrumental that it changed the Western world, politicians got interested in Standard Oil. Right. And as soon as, you know, if your power company said, we just decided to jack the cost of electricity by a factor of 10, would you pay it? Sure, you pay it, right? Would you complain? Who would you complain to? It's a politician, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so we've got these, uh, these networks. They're really important. But eventually, they become, if they're important enough, they become commodity networks. And so th that, that's an interesting characteristic. The reason that gold doesn't work over time is, by the way, we, we have two examples. It doesn't work over time because people produce two to 3% more of it a year. And over a hundred years, that means you lose 90% of your energy. It doesn't work over time because there's counterparty risks, you know, and, and the Polish bank through no fault of their own got overrun by the Nazis right. in World War II. And yep. the Beijing bank got overrun by first, you know, one regime, then another regime, then a third regime, right? So that's another reason it doesn't work. And the third reason it doesn't work is if the people become threatened by the network. So for example, 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt found gold to be inconvenient. Mm -hmm. If the people become threatened, they complain to the politicians, the politicians might go ahead and take action. And in, in this case, the reason that they were able to take action is because all the gold was sitting in the same place. So if the gold's sitting right. in a vault, and we know where it is, and it's under the control of institutions. The institutions are under control of governments, and therefore, that that and that heightens the counterparty risk because of the centralized nature of gold. So the best case for a gold network is you're going to lose ninety percent of your energy over a hundred years, but the likely right. case is you're going to lose ninety-five to. 98% of your energy over 100 years. And, and if we looked at Nicholas Taleb's like range of outcomes, if you take 100, the 100 biggest cities in the world and you put your gold in the best bank in any of the 100 cities in the world, it looks like in 95 of them or 96 of them or maybe, maybe 99 of them, you lost all your money. You You're lost all out. your yeah. money. Yeah. So, so isn't it, if we come this, back to the issue of monetary, now, go ahead, Robert. Just add one thing. So that highlights to one of the shortcomings of gold is that 
the economies of scale uh, lead to its centralization, right? Because it is so heavy and hard to transact, it's not, you know, you compare it compared to Bitcoin that's non-corporeal that can be transmitted uh, at the speed of light. Because gold is so heavy to settle, right? That that leads to its centralization in bank vaults, and that becomes the ultimate honeypot for for politicians and governments, frankly. And the, and the other, I guess, attack vector we didn't discuss is that that temptation is always given into, right? As soon as things get dicey, governments immediately monopolize that golden energy network, which is the most important in the world. Let's say it's not fast enough. We talk about, you know, every good technology is smarter, faster, stronger. Every technology, smarter, faster, stronger. So coming to digital gold versus gold, physical gold is not fast enough. How fast is it? If I wanted to move $100 million of gold, as we talked about, it's going to cost me $250,000. So that's a, that, it's impedance. But how long is it going to take you? A week? A month? Somewhere between, a, you, know, you want to move 3,000 pounds of gold from New York? To, I've got a month, I'm guessing, if you want to get all the protocols set up. So, so you're talking about a quarter million dollars in a month to move the gold. If assuming I needed another custodian and I used Bitcoin and I wanted to move a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, and this is this is where you know Bitcoin critics are just utterly wrong and missing the point. They all think they all think, oh well, it takes 30 minutes and five dollars to move Bitcoin. And they're comparing it to uh, a new crypto network that has no value on it. And they're saying, right. I could find a way to move it in five minutes for a nickel. But that's not the point. The, the appropriate comparison is to gold. How right. long would it take to move $100 million of gold? And because there's $250 trillion in assets in the alt assets. And there's only $25 billion of real asset in the alt coins or the alt cryptos. So how long does it take me to move the $250 trillion around? And when you think about that, you realize that, that Bitcoin would move it in 30 minutes instead of 30 days. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's 1,440 times as fast, right? A thousand times as fast a minute versus 1,440 minutes in a day. And so it's, it's 1,000 times as fast, but then it's $5 versus $250,000. Right. I know, so we, we do yeah. that. That's 50,000 times cheaper. Absolutely. So, so now we've got people saying, oh, well, it's very energy inefficient, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's not really, it's, 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 it's inefficient in the way that it's inefficient to create an electro, electro high-speed transit system, a mass transit system. It was expensive to build the mass transit system. It got really, really cheap to move on the rails. Right. If you look at the history of railroads, right, the biggest thing in the 19th century was railroads. It was pretty expensive to create the railroads 
it became really cheap to move on the rails. Right, right, right. So what we do is we've created crypto rails in order to make it 50,000 times cheaper to move. But it's, it's not just that it's 50,000 times cheaper. It's that it's 1,000 times faster and 50,000 times cheaper. And then when you start to multiply 1,000 times 50,000, and you realize it starts to be 50 million times faster. Right. And then you start to add that third dimension, which is maybe a computer that thinks about this while you're sleeping 18,000 times. And you realize eventually you get to 50 billion times faster. And now we've, we've got to a new engineering or, or, or new scientific metaphor, which is superconducting networks. Right. Okay. Right. If you, you know, there's impedance going through electric power network and you're losing it. And so the, the solution is I need to get the superconductance. I got to cool the network down to close to near zero. Right. And it's expensive. And the point is, yeah, it's expensive to get to near zero. And then the impedance disappears in the network and the friction goes away. And what could you do if the friction went completely away right you're in outer space right the smallest amount of energy you can move something billions of miles and i love okay, that so analogy what? too that you're getting to a lower energy state and that eliminates the frictions to to conductance so you achieve superconductivity and in a way that's what bitcoin is right it's a monetary medium completely free of the noise of unexpected inflation so you're actually conveying pure price signal, something we even gold, we didn't quite have that. I, and I love your analogy because, I mean, the aerospace engineer in me is, is, is loving it a lot. You could think about when, when you encrypt monetary energy on the Bitcoin network, it's like achieving escape velocity out of the gravity well. What we've done, it, we paid a price to get out of the gravity well, throw a baseball on a baseball field that goes a couple of hundred feet, get out of the gravity well, throw the baseball, it'll go around the earth forever, yeah. doesn't it? Okay, so how much more distance do you get out of the baseball if you pay the price of getting out of the gravity well? Right. It's not, it's not like 10 times better. It's not 100 times better. It's not a million times better. It's it goes to infinity and it never stops. And that's the that's the breakthrough that people don't get. It's like, what could I do if I had vacuum and I was I was rid of friction? And yeah, there's a price to pay. And and that's your phase change and your state change. And uh, that's why I would say Bitcoin is the most efficient system for channeling energy through time and space in the history of mankind. We, we've never figured out how to channel energy with no impedance and channel energy with no loss. But let's, let's come back to the outer space analogy. Take your flashlight and shine it in your basement. Take your flashlight, shine it you know, on your baseball field. Now get into outer space and take your flashlight and shine it or flip it the other way. The Hubble telescope 
right? How much better are the photos you get from the Hubble telescope than the photos you get from a telescope that has to shoot through the atmosphere? Right. It's, totally it's, it's free of like distortion. A, it's a billion times better. Yeah. It's like you just can't really imagine the world when you're trapped in I think this it's a, energy well. This analogy too holds for the counterparty, the institutional counterparty risk. It's almost as once you escape the gravity well, you're also free of institutional counterparty risk, right? I don't need to worry about the stability of the United States or JP Morgan to transmit Bitcoin 100 years into the future. You only need to be concerned about the stability of the energy network, which is maintained by the collective self-interest of the world, in theory. Yeah, it it's something that's just altogether unique and we've just never had it before. Um, if, if, you now, if you now conceptualize that and you go through your thought experiment, you realize we need a monetary system and our monetary system, the three in front of our face are, let, let's take it, uh, fiat is a monetary system, gold is a monetary system, uh, Bitcoin as a, as a monetary system. If I put my $100 million of monetary energy, I, I have energy. I take energy, I sell it on the grid, you give me money. I take my money, I put it into the US dollar bank, it's in fiat. I wait 100 years. And it's 7 to 8% asset inflation rate. I have a half-life of 10 years. So I get cut in half 10 times, okay? 100 million, 50 million, 25 million, 12 million. It's gonna get painful. Yeah. Six million, three million. I only cut in half five times. One and a half million, that's six times. Now it gets really painful. 70 basis points, 35 basis points, 17 basis points, Eight basis points. Eight basis points. Crazy. Oh, wait. Eight basis points. If you don't get hyperinflation, uh, the eight basis points. If if your nation wins, your best war, case. Yeah. Your bet. You know. So we're not even want to say it's you're losing ninety nine percent of your energy is being charitable. Ninety nine percent of your energy. Let's say. Now let's put that. Let's let's generate a hundred million dollars worth of electricity by burning coal or nuclear power or pedaling on my flywheel or rowing on my rowing machine. However, you got to it, windmills. Let's sell it to the grid. Take the hundred million, and let's go to J.P. Morgan and let's buy a hundred million dollars worth of gold and let's have them custodian for me. Put it in their vault. I guess I could just take it with me. It's three thousand pounds. Right, two thousand dollars an ounce, or whatever the number is, you know. Yeah. Okay, so one and a half tons. No, I got to put it in a vault, right? So I put it in a vault, and I pay for custody fees, and you know, going in there's a fee, but and then I'm I'm paying whatever twenty, thirty, forty basis points a year to keep it, and then the miners are out there doing their mining thing, and it's probably 200 basis points worth of additional gold. So that's 250 basis points a year. 
And if I watch it and, you know, assuming I'm, it's just a, a dead rock and I'm not, it's, it's heavy. I'm not moving it. I'm doing nothing with it. I'm just staring at it. Then uh, I've just got the, I've got to add on the counterparty risk and then the fracking risk or the technology risk. The fracking risk is, <clears throat> is um, academics always opine about shortages. Shortage, you know, academics have been saying there's an oil shortage, an energy shortage coming. They've been saying it since the Club of Rome in 1973 or something. They, they said it in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And the world always predicted that we were gonna run out of oil or run out of energy in about 10 years. And this is, I studied this at MIT. I created computer simulations about it. There's an entire school of thought, system dynamics that studies these things. And the flaw in the reasoning is it's a linear uh, interpretation of the world instead of a, a closed feedback or a non-linear interpretation of the world. The linear interpretation of the world is we got 10 years worth of oil because that's what our name proven reserves are. The closed loop interpretation of the world is when we get to, when we actually get to five years worth of reserves, people start looking for more reserves. Right. And so no company wants to carry on their balance sheet more than about 10 years worth. And then they just keep finding more, but they don't publish it because we're not factoring in human will to live. Right. human ingenuity, right? People have a tendency that when you tell them they're about to run out of something, they reprioritize, they think a little bit harder, and they go come up with an innovative solution. So that's what happened with fracking. We were going to run out of oil. We had a crisis, and eventually the price of oil went high enough that people sat down and said, you know, if we invent a new chemistry and if we raise some capital, we can go ahead and implement fracking and we double the amount of oil. And we did it fast. We had 5 million barrels a day for like 40 years and that was conventional wisdom and everybody thought that's it. And then we went the next year to 6 million, the next year to 7 million, the next year to 8 million, the next year to 9 million, the next year to 10 million. And I watched it happen and I watched, you know, all of the big investment bankers, JP Morgan and the like, they went and they raised billions of dollars from investors and they invested in these fracking companies and Chesapeake Energy and all these others popped up and we were awash with oil. And the next thing you read is that we have too much oil. Yeah. And you know why? Because wow. it's a commodity. Because yeah. if you put $100 billion into anything, you invent something new. So for, for you to be a, this is why being a cynic and a pessimist about technology is generally a losing trade because you're assuming that human beings won't invent anything new and have right. no capability to do it different. And this has its roots in the, what I would say is kind of the Malthusian fallacy, right? Where he said, we're gonna run out of food, there's gonna be mass starvation, and it just fails to take into account the non-linearities associated with innovation, right? When we get our back against the wall, so to speak, we get smarter. We figure out new ways of, of extracting resources or, or growing food. And it's impossible to, I think, project that, right? You can't, you don't know when those breakthroughs are coming, but when they do come, it releases a lot of energy, right? It releases a lot of productivity. Yeah, Malthus is, it's the, the iconic example of just being utterly wrong over and over and over again. And if you study the history of science, 
the history of science is very simple. The non-scientists and non-believers, they will tell you why it's impossible. And then the creative, innovative scientist who thought, I'm going to ignore that and just go try it. And 99% of the population generally will just tell you why it's impossible and be cynical and critical and they're fearful. And the 1% will say, I think I'll just go try it. And of course, the 1% is generally right. I mean, they're wrong until they're right. The technology fails until it succeeds. But if they just keep trying, the likelihood that you'll invent electricity or airplanes or antibiotics or, or better techniques for agriculture or, or uh, mobile phones or YouTube, the likelihood is high it is highly likely that someone in the future will come up with a way to extract all the energy you're ever going to need from some element the size of a sugar cube. Mm-hmm. We don't have it yet. And I can probably find a million conventional thinkers that'll tell us why it's impossible. The same guys, you know, that told John Harrison, he couldn't discover longitude with a clock and the same guys that told the Wright brothers they couldn't fly. It'll be those same guys and they'll be right until they're wrong. Right. And, um, and in this particular case, that's a good thing. That, that's a good thing if what you want is abundance. But that's why it's a crippling intellectual mistake to run a monetary system on a commodity that can be produced by man. Ultimately, you have to run a monetary system on math, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, I think before, mathematical money because two plus two equals four. And as long as two plus two equals four, human ingenuity is not the enemy. And by the way, this, this is a basic sociological principle, really, which is if you want to design a system assuming that people are stupid and will not evolve and cannot defeat it, or do you want to design a system assuming people are smart and channel the energy of human ingenuity into making the system work better. And this is why gold is defective and why a a decentralized crypto network of which Bitcoin is the most successful in the history of the world, that's why that is effective because Bitcoin is channeling human ingenuity into making it better. And, and every commodity is channeling human energy into making it worse as a money. Right. And uh, so if we come back to this idea, right, um, Bitcoin is the ultimate energy network. Well, we're going we're gonna to bleed 99.5% of our energy on a fiat network. We're going to bleed 95% or more of our energy on a gold network. Once you calculate uh, the fully diluted Bitcoin count, 20,999,999 spot nine eight, as I heard from Andreas the other day, that number, just slightly less than 21 million. Once you've done that, then you just realize that it's a lossless monetary energy system through, through time, through space, it has a slight loss in the form of transaction fees, but that's a good thing. And it's a, it's a, the transaction fees 
on, on the Bitcoin network are like a little bit of impedance and, and or a little bit of gravity, a little bit of friction. And, you know, the goddess of wisdom that created the universe gave us a little bit of friction. It's a good thing. No gravity, no friction. Your life gets really, really complicated. No resistance, no growth. No yeah. So, yeah. And so there's nothing wrong with just a slight bit of friction. That's why the idea that I got to drive transaction fees to zero is a silly idea. It's like, no, we, what we want to do is drive inflation or, or, in, or the loss of energy over time to zero. And then we want there to be a slight loss of energy when we reorganize all of the monetary energy. When I send $100 million from New York to Tokyo, I don't mind spending $5. Mm -hmm. I probably won't mind spending $50. When Bitcoin has $250 trillion of energy into it, there's no reason why you can't pay $25 billion in transaction fees. People forget. Again, it's, this is the problem of, of the crypto community. They're fixated upon a prototypical coin network that's a lab experiment, and they're comparing it to Bitcoin instead of comparing Bitcoin to actual monetary or asset networks in the real world. So, for example, here's a real asset network. It's called real estate. I have $100 trillion of real estate. You have a house. Let's say you have a million-dollar house. You want to hold, this is a good example. Let's assume that real estate is my energy network. If you want to actually uh, carry uh, a million dollar house a hundred years, in Florida, there's a 2% uh, real, real estate tax. You would pay $20,000 a year every year for a hundred years, assuming that the house was capped and not reappraised. And so <clears throat> you're in essence, going to lose the house in 50 years, right? Under the best of circumstances, you're going to lose all your wealth in about 20 years if you store your wealth or you store your monetary energy in a real estate network in, um, in uh, Florida. So if, if you go to any other real estate uh, jurisdiction, they've all got different tax rates over time. But this is why you can't really store energy in property because the tax rate generally will bleed you out with a half, you know, somewhere between 20 years and a hundred years. Now, that's the that's the inflation rate, or or the uh, or the uh, the energy loss rate over time. What about over space? What if you want to transfer a million dollar house? What if I want to buy it from you? So you want to exchange heat exchange, energy exchange. You want to exchange the energy in the house? Well, it's a 6% transaction fee. And, it, and at the point that I said, Robert, I want to buy your house. I'll give you a million bucks for it. How many days to closing? 30? Probably yeah. 30. Best case. Okay. So you just paid $60,000 and waited a month in order to do your transaction. Now compare that to Bitcoin again. Mm. Right, 30 minutes, six bucks, 30 days, $60,000.
this is why we don't use property as an energy network. By the way, way, some people do. You could ask people point blank, how are you going to actually give your money to your uh, granddaughter? Oh, I'm going to buy property. Buy it where? California? Florida? Where? It's the same counterparty rate. By the way, it's worse than gold. You can move move 3,000 pounds of gold in 30 days for... $150,000, $200,000. You can't move $100 million worth of property in 30 days to another country. And you're also taking the counterparty risk again. The other thing with property is that it's non-fungible, right? So the liquidity, the market is much smaller than say gold or Bitcoin. Um, And you, yeah, you run the risk of that area having some natural disaster or some other event that makes it uninhabitable or or unappealing it's it's illiquid right it could take you three years to sell the house that's right it'll take you three years to to find a counterparty it'll take you 30 days to do the transaction now we just come back to this fee right what are the transaction fees on the visa network what are the transaction fees across any monetary network um, it's it's pretty routine to pay one two three percent to move something around. If Bitcoin gets to be a hundred trillion dollars and there's one percent transaction fees, it's going to be ten. Well, pick any number, multiply by one percent, right? It's a trillion dollars a year in transaction fees. Nothing wrong with that. What's the entire size of the, you know what the spreads are in the bond industry? Like I used to buy and, and sell convertible debt. There were two, 200 basis point spreads. You could buy at 96. I'm sorry, you could, you could buy at 98. You could sell at 96. The banks got in between. Right. Yeah. You know, like, so all of all of the financial system is built on taking a spread that's why new york city has tall buildings right we talked about this before we talked wherever there's a node in a network a railhead i mean venice paris london new york wherever there's a node in a central network where there's exchange there's a transaction fee and uh if you if you're lucky it's only 1% or 2% mm-hmm. when you're unlucky I mean, there's a reason people refer to free ports. Free port meant that when you pull your ship into the port, we weren't going to steal it all. Like, <laughs> like but you know what the, what the great breakthrough is in Singapore? Here's the breakthrough. We're going to have a port in the middle of the Pacific where if a ship comes into our port, we don't take all their cargo or we don't take 10% of their cargo. That, that's your idea? Yeah. That's my idea. We're going to let them stop here and not seize 10% of their stuff. Wow. That's a brilliant idea. By the way, that's such a unique concept that Singapore is Singapore. It is the greatest port in all the Pacific because it's so rare that a country agrees not to take 3% of what you have when you stop. By the way, you can't even come into the United States without filling out a customs form where they charge you a 10% duty on whatever you have in your possession. The point, it's very common to take 10% of what you have when you come and when you leave. That's why those cities are cities. That's why those empires are empires. 
So when someone sits around and they whine about $5 in transaction fees is too great, they're, they're whining because it's more expensive than their laboratory experiment on their scientific workbench that no one's using. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you can, you can, I can conceptualize hypothetically in my perfect world, a perfect system where it was better. But the real world is a hundred trillion dollars worth of real estate and 250 trillion dollars worth of bonds and stocks and gold and silver yeah. and other property. And that stuff's moving around with, with transaction fees, which are, are high enough to have paid for all the buildings in London, Paris, New York, San Francisco, Beijing, Tokyo, right. Venice, and Rome. It's not a new idea to charge transaction fees. It's not a problem. And the beauty of Bitcoin is as more miners come on, they create a very competitive industry and if, and if a, a miner charges too much transaction fees, someone else is going to drive the, the cost of transaction fees down. And if, if the revenue from transaction fees falls below the variable cost of running the mining rigs, people are going to take mining rigs out of production eventually, unless a government wants to subsidize them, in Good which point, yeah. A government's going to be subsidizing the crypto rails, which create the 21st century economy. And that, you know, that's, by the way, that's the reason why mining is a bit riskier as a business than owning Bitcoin. Right. right? Because you're getting into a commodity business where you may get driven down to the variable cost of, of the electricity or below the variable cost of the electricity if someone else wants to get into the business and they can. And that's, it's good for Bitcoin. It's good for everything built above the chain, right? Caveat M4, if you want to get into uh, the commodity or the, the, in, the business of encrypted energy. Right. I think that's a great point too, that you bring up the transaction fees on the Bitcoin network are set at fair market value, right? It is a freely competitive industry such that all of the transaction fees are a consensual exchange. And the value paid in those transaction fees goes, you know, with very little loss directly to supporting the security of the network. Whereas ostensibly these government fees that are, you know, they're non-consensual, they're conducted under, you know, a monopolized area, a lot of that value being extracted 10% in, 10% out is not going to securing the property rights that you're bringing in and out, right? It's a, a very small piece of that. Most of it's going into political coffers. And, and politicians, they don't even hide that. They'll say, we've just decided to tax this in order to pay for something unrelated. Exactly, yeah. All right, guys, how good was that? Another great episode with Mr. Saylor. Um, I think we're starting to see things come together in this episode where all of this foundation we've been laying uh, starts to really highlight the significance of Bitcoin in the modern age. And we started out talking about <clears throat> Bitcoin being the first true digital monetary network in history. You know, there have been prior attempts with things like e-gold um, and other things, but they had never solved the issue of, of 
counterparties, frankly. We'd never had a trust-minimized digital money um, that was basically more or less free of counterparty risk. And Sailor brings up the great point that, you know, Bitcoin, I think at the time we recorded as well over $200 billion in market cap. And when you look at Bitcoin through that lens as an energy, a digital energy network, other digital energy networks like Amazon, Apple, Netflix, et cetera, once they pass that $100 billion milestone, it tends to be kind of a point of no return um, and also a point that leads them to um, realizing these winner-take-all dynamics in, in uh, digital competition. And so it, <clears throat> and he also makes a great point that at that point in those companies' life cycles, those digital monetary, or I'm sorry, those digital energy networks' life cycles, 99% of the investment community still doesn't get it, right? When Amazon or Apple was at 100 billion market cap, people were still just, just writing them off and didn't, didn't realize that these are going to be multi, you know, even trillion dollar companies today. So I thought that was really interesting that Bitcoin is, we really are at that juncture, you know, where it's crossed uh, the multi hundred billion dollar market cap threshold. And that gives it a lot of resiliency to just, excuse me, disruption or, or downside potential, um, where it still has a, just a ton of upside potential. If you look at it, even in the context of, of gold's market cap, um, or even other um, store about stores of value, and I, I liked that Sailor went into how these digital networks they're dematerializing some ineffable quality, which he was talking about with like social media as friendship, or you know with with Apple you could say maybe it's information or communication. Um, in the case of Bitcoin, it's money, and there it's taking that ineffable quality to a lower energy state, something that's more crystalline-like. And when it, when it does that, uh, you know, using the, the analogy of a phase transition, say water going from liquid to ice, all of this thermal energy is released. Um, and in an economic sense, those, that would be value or cash flows or, or market cap. Uh, what, what I think he called was an exothermal reaction, right? Where it actually collapses uh, to a state that requires lower energy to remain cohesive and gives off that excess energy um, in the form of, of value of, of some kind. And I just thought that was a brilliant way to look at it. And it calls to mind again the, the standardization, right? Like when we, when we achieve certain standards and everyone starts singing off of the same song sheet, productivity just explodes. So our effort effort necessary to maintain the network collapses. So the network gains a lot of density. And then in doing that, it just um, throws off all of this, uh, you know, whatever the ineffable quality it's aiming for, whether it's, whether it's energy or value or, or productivity, for instance. And then Sailor, you know, is so kind to actually answer the question that we always ask on the show, which is what is money? And the way he puts it is that money is the highest form of energy that human beings can channel. Um, and indeed, if you go back to what we talked about like in episode one, we looked at the Stone Age technologies, that's what human beings have been doing to advance themselves. And it's what distinguishes man from animal, in fact, is that we harness energy and channel it across the field lines of our intellect, essentially. 
and he made the point that you know fire the three stunning technology we looked at were fire missiles and water fire was harnessing and channeling chemical energy missiles were kinetic energy and water was gravitational energy and in the modern era you know we, we've we've evolved past that and now we're dealing with things like thermal energy electrical energy even nuclear energy and the point that he makes is that all of this the meta energy, if you will, that controls all of the others is money, right? Money is a claim on the collective savings of humanity. It's a claim on the efforts present or past or even future of all of us. Um, so any group that commands one of these forms of energy can be commanded themselves by money. So it makes money this, this form of, of meta energy, which I thought was a very interesting definition. And it's actually... It's also what defines civilization in a way. It's like, what types of energy are we harnessing, right? Are we a Stone Age society that's only harnessing fire? Um, and at what scale are we doing that? How, you know, at what scale are we channeling that energy? That's, those two aspects are kind of what defines civilization in a lot of ways. And he makes the point too that the challenge has always been moving the energy across the domain. And this domain could even either be uh, say a jurisdictional or governmental domain. You know, how do you get your capital out of one country into another with the least loss possible? Uh, could be characterological. So, from going from thermal energy to kinetic energy, what's the most efficient way to do that? We could look at something like maybe the steam engine was such a breakthrough because it, it um, allowed us to transition energy in the, the least, uh, the most lossless way, we could say. Or even just moving the energy across space and time. Right? If we can harness it and store it in a medium uh, that's reliable and then transport it somewhere else and, and um, redeem it at later, at later times for later uses, uh, that has a lot of value as well as, as humans try to go into the world and, and solve problems. And so in that lens, historically at least, gold was energy money, right? It was the, it's what captured the residual energy that mankind was able to produce that was not able to be put to a higher and better use. So if we couldn't uh, dedicate our efforts towards any other activity that could increase productivity um, more than say gold mining, then we would just go and mine gold, right? And gold, again, being kind of this hard energy money would, would sort of be a, its annual appreciation would be a proxy for the, the aggregate productivity growth in an economy. And if you, if, unless your investment could outperform that, say it's two or three percent a year, uh, then you would just mine gold. So it kind of provided this floor for, for, for human energy and this medium through which we stored it and transported it. But I loved this part where Sailor went into the math behind why gold sucks. Like, is good, even though it was the best thing we ever had historically, like, it still sucks as an energy money. One was if you want to move gold around the world once, Say it costs you 25 basis points, which on $100 million is $250,000 just to move it around the world once. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, if you're doing that once a quarter, that's 1% energy loss per year. And that's something which we got into, you would almost have to do. Because if you're going to store gold, you've got to put it in a vault. It's got to be physically safeguarded. It's going to be physically safeguarded over a long period of time. Then you have to trust a counterparty. You have to trust a custodian. And as we went through history, 
many of these custodians and nation states have fallen over. So it's if you wanted to transport wealth across 100 years, you would necessarily need to change locations um, rather frequently uh, just to avoid that risk or minimize that risk. And then I also looked at, so that was across space, right? Say it costs 1% to move it four times a year across space. And then also gold production increases about 2% per year. So gold's losing, uh, it's got a 2% dilution built right into it with gold mining. And so if you put those two together, you call it 3% loss per year in this, this monetary energy battery. You've got a 22 year half-life, right? In 22 years of holding your value in gold, you're gonna get cut in half. So that's just not that great, you know, like as far as building something in a long time horizon. And then when you start to factor in the counterparty risk, oh, I'm sorry, after, when you get into 100 years, so that's half-life is 22 years. After 100 years, you're talking about 87% loss um, in value if you're storing in gold. And that's your best case, by the way. That's assuming you move it to the right places and you don't end up storing it in a Frankfurt or uh, a Tokyo in 1900 or any of these other cities that you know lost a war or their institutions were compromised. This assumes that you make the right moves with it. Your best case is, a, is call it a 90% loss in value. Your worst case is 100%, which is either confiscation or outright. Um, or, you know, theft of a, of a German, if you were in Poland and a Germany invaded your country, then your gold was stolen effectively. And Bitcoin's is fundamentally different because it's this form of money that is, it's digitized energy, right? So it's not stored in a physical corporeal form that can be seen, targeted, confiscated. It's informational, which allows you a lot of unique ways to custody it in these ultra high security schemas um, that are largely resistant to these, these forms of counterparty risk that we've seen gold succumb to in the past. And then we got into commodities, uh, the economic principles surrounding them. And I like how we described gold mining and that the CapEx deployed into gold mining is really largely for the purpose of mining gold and the switching costs related to it are very high. So you can't just turn your gold miner off and start mining silver, right? You really, you have to, in, in some cases, depending on the, the actual piece of equipment, it may only be useful for mining gold, but assuming it's useful for mining something else, you would have to pull it out of the mine, put it on a truck or a ship, ship it somewhere else, redeploy it. Uh, not to mention all the training and security uh, involved with that. So. Very high switching costs on the CapEx related to gold mining. And this leads to specialized producers overproducing, right? So they'll overproduce this commodity, gold, down to the point where marginal revenue is equal to marginal cost, so there's no profit, and even below at times, because again, they're trying to amortize the cost of this CapEx they've invested in gold mining. Or they could also possibly, if they get desperate enough, they can seek a government subsidy um, that can allow them to mine below the cost of capital even further. And so this, all of this leads to um, commodity money sort of getting destroyed. It, it just, it 
the incentives are to always increase its supply and always uh, compress its margins. And I, you know, that the way Saylor puts this is that the energy being channeled into commodity production, it's actually the incentives related to it are targeting human ingenuity at destroying that commodity or commodifying it, which is to say compress its profit margin and increase its supply. Whereas those incentives in Bitcoin are fundamentally different, which we'll touch on shortly. But the interesting thing here with, with gold is as a commodity or energy money is that it was a stable form of energy at room temperature, which as we touched on in prior episodes is like, was akin to the breakthrough with uh, consumer packaged goods, right? With post foods that they could store food energy at room temperature in the form of, of cornflakes or, or other canned or dried goods. So, uh, and that's, this also points to commodification at least, points to this kind of interesting configuration in the world where we have, say the electric and water networks in any civilization are clearly the most important, right? If you turned off electricity or water, chaos would ensue. Um, whereas if you turned off, say Google or Amazon, it might be inconvenient, but it's not necessarily gonna be a total breakdown in society. But Amazon and Google are tremendously more valuable on a market cap basis than electric and water networks. And the answer to why is because electric and water networks are commodified, right? They have become uh, this network that's so fundamental to civilization that we've, we've optimized how we produce and distribute these goods in a way that makes them ultra cost effective uh, to the consumer. Whereas things like Amazon and Google are, they haven't been commodified yet, right? They're still new enough. Uh, they're newly explored industrial territory, if you will. And there's still very uh, large margins there. And then they're, they're, they're also monopolists, right? Which as we saw earlier in the steel age um, and in the railroads and whatnot, the, in these newly charted industrial spaces, you tend to have monopolies first for commodification. Well, first of all, the monopolist sets standards. Once the standards are set, the commodification sets in and actually compresses the margin and, and leads us to um, the more free market environment we have today. So commodification also points to why FANG stocks, which are being predominantly used as a store of value today, right? Since the store of value function of fiat currency has been so compromised, we see a lot of institutional capital pools, high net worth individuals, um, everyone really that would typically depend on fiat currency as a store of value, resorting to the FANG stocks or other high flying uh, tech stocks as a store of value, something that is reliably scarce enough to hold its value across time. But commodification, uh, the history of it and the economic principles behind it actually point towards why that's a really bad strategy for the long run. Um, because we're early in the digital age, you know, these data monopolies, although they could be expected to persist for some time, uh, you know, years, possibly even decades, um, it's very unlikely that the 
large margins, profit margins they are enjoying today will persist far into the future. What's much more likely is that now that standards are established, we'll see commodification uh, some of these digital utilities that are monopolized today, uh, if, if history is any indicator. So in that way, you know, the FANG stocks, although they're like a primary store value today, maybe second only to, to government bonds, um, and increasingly so now that government bonds are largely yielding negative, um, they make for a really poor long-term store value. And it's also points towards Bitcoin and, and the uniqueness of it in that Bitcoin is like the ultimate store value through this lens of commodification because it actually resists commodification. So if you think that Bitcoin mining is this race to produce hashes more cheaply, right? We can think of a hash as a, a vote or a lottery ticket um, trying to win, trying to solve the puzzle to win the Coinbase uh, reward, which is you know the, the newly minted Bitcoin uh, at, in every block every 10 minutes. And so the commodification of Bitcoin is actually in the energy being allocated into its network. However, and this is where Bitcoin is so unique, is that in every four years, the algorithm adjusts itself in such a way that it actually uh, pushes back on this commodifying force uh, by cutting its new supply flow in half. So, you know, at a halving, the operational and energy expense being allocated to generate a hash, which is to earn, to create Bitcoin, basically, um, that same cost flows into half as much Bitcoin being produced. So as Bitcoin is undergoing this downward pressure cost of production, as people figure out how to generate hashes more cheaply, right, with cheaper energy or better ASICs or whatever the, the breakthrough is, the algorithm pushes back every four years and says, you know, you're, you're pressing down cost of production um, in one way, but then every four years, we're going to, we're going to double it. And that is, that's actually the incentive structure that makes Bitcoin so interesting um, because that keeps ratcheting its marginal cost of production higher. Right. And then as we know uh, in, you know, by studying commodities and money, that the marginal cost of revenue or the market price tends to converge to the marginal cost of production. So Bitcoin, uh, the algorithm actually has this rising floor cost of production, and that's what's ratcheting uh, its market price higher and higher. And if you look at just the, the price action of Bitcoin historically on the log scale mapped over these halvings, you see it perfectly. Um, it's not to say that that will hold indefinitely into the future, but it's definitely very unique um, and that we've never seen an asset that has this, um, you know, at least we're 12 years in, very predictable and algorithmically enforced uh, market value, or I wouldn't say enforced, let's say driven. Uh, it's definitely influenced by the algorithm. So something that's really interesting and very unique to economics. And the other thing that's interesting to me about that is it's it's like it's inverting the economic principles behind commodification. So if you think that the ratcheting effects 
in say gold production will actually be to produce gold more cheaply over time, right? So just make gold uh, more and more cheaply over time, um, which actually points to why gold was selected as money because it's the thing that most resisted commodification, right? You couldn't get the cost of gold production lower because it's so scarce and hard to produce. But because Bitcoin's pushing back, it's actually pushing those, uh, instead of it, all of that effort flowing into producing cheaper Bitcoin, it's actually pushing us to just seek out cheaper energy. So it's it's created this uh, global perpetual incentive scheme to to figure out cheaper ways to make energy, right? Because you can't, because that's the only way to access uh, cheaper Bitcoin production effectively. Um, although Bitcoin keeps getting harder to produce. So it's just really, really unique um, economics to think about. And then we went into the settlement aspects of Bitcoin and why comparing it to another crypto asset is simply the wrong comparison. Uh, Sailor made a great point that if you, if you want to compare the cost to settle in Bitcoin, you have to compare it to gold because with gold, you are settling in finality, right? If you, if I flip you a gold coin, you put it in your pocket and walk away, you and I have participated in an irreversible transaction. Uh, there's no authority in the world that can make you give me that coin back. Uh, and there's no authority in the world that can, aside from gold mining, that can devalue that coin, right? So it's, um, we've transferred a token of self-sovereign wealth, right? It is, a, it is a final transaction, a final settlement. And there's only one other asset in the world that lets you do that in a in a fully depoliticized way, right? You could argue that, oh, Ethereum lets you do that, but Ethereum is subject to political attack vectors. We don't know its whole supply. There's a, a, a small group of people that control uh, its functioning, whereas that's just not true for Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is the only truly decentralized digital asset in the world. And so that points to another way to think about Bitcoin, another analogy that we went into was this, the superconductive monetary network, right? It's a, a lossless energy network. So we can now transmit this meta energy that is money across time, across space, across jurisdictional domain, governmental domain, um, with the least amount of loss. And and the, the analogy there is to the super superconductivity is it uh, superconductivity is, is effectively cooling the <clears throat> the conductive material to a very low temperature, so very low entropy medium, and by by uh, getting the entropy out of the channel, it maximizes the flow of energy. Right? There's there's the least impedance or the least friction in the channel. And I love that analogy for Bitcoin because that is what Bitcoin, that's the breakthrough that Bitcoin is, right? It's the first asset we have in history that has absolute 0% noise in the channel, which is unexpected supply inflation. Everyone knows and can agree to what the supply is and what the supply ever will be. Um, and the, the, the other thing that analogy proves is that, um, or points towards rather, is that 
it's very expensive to achieve that, right? There's a great deal of energy expenditure necessary to achieve superconductivity or to achieve uh, this breakthrough. But once you get there, you release all of these uh, productivity gains. Um, again, kind of like that, that uh, in the phase transition to a lower energy state, when it crystallizes, it just throws off this exothermic reaction of value, cash flow, profit, whatever it is. And um, the, you know, it's, that's what Bitcoin's done, right? It's, you, we've now had this singular moment breakthrough, which we call the Genesis block. Um, pretty much everything from there is in a step function of the algorithm that is now releasing all of these gains into the world in terms of reducing frictions to trade, um, you know, re reducing the noise and theft in the channel in the form of inflation, and then um, giving us a, a medium of wealth storage that can't be confiscated, right? So it's taken a lot of unpredictability out of money, if you will. And I liked that same achievement can also be analogized to achieving escape velocity, which I thought was a really cool analogy. And that once you get, you know, there's a huge expenditure, say, to get into orbit, right? If you imagine a rocket, how much fuel it has to expend, how much ingenuity and design and science has to go into building a rocket uh, to get it uh, going fast enough away from the Earth to escape Earth's gravitational field. But once you get into orbit, all of a sudden, your returns on energy expended go to like near infinity, right? You could just, the, the example Sailor gave was throwing a baseball on a baseball field, go, you know, a few hundred feet, I guess, if you've got a strong arm, and then it'll fall. You throw that same baseball in orbit, it just goes around the earth forever, right? So your, your returns on energy expended just explode, just they become astronomical. And <clears throat> Sailor said about this, he said, quote, Bitcoin is the most efficient system for channeling energy through time and space in the history of mankind. Like if we just sit with that for a while and really think about the profundity of something like that, and that we are the species that channel energy across time and space. That's what distinguishes us as man. And here we have the system that has achieved this function at, to a higher degree than any other system we've ever created. That's the breakthrough Bitcoin is. It's something truly remarkable. Um, and it's you know why so many of us have decided to devote our life to it, talking about it, educating others. Um, so this thing, I, lo I love the, the engineering mindset and lens that Sailor brought to this equation. Um, I had talked about a lot of these aspects of Bitcoin previously, but I was more focused on the, the time side, um, which time too is, is like absolutely scarce, but it's more of an experiential uh, aspect of reality, whereas Sailor is very focused on the energy, which is much more of an engineering or physicist aspect uh, of reality and much more measurable uh, and objective than even time. So I think it's it's... They're kind of saying the same thing, but it but it's um, speaking to a different audience in a way. And I think it's uh, just really good, really good stuff he's bringing to the table. And 
the other thing, the other the last part I thought was cool about the the absolute zero superconductive monetary network or achieving escape velocity was the example of the Hubble Space Telescope, right? So for the whole history of astronomy, we've been pointing our telescopes toward the sky, but we've dealt with atmospheric distortion, something we've had to correct for, something like um, certain objects far into the distance we just couldn't even see. Um, and it's all because we had this distortion, right, of, of the, the atmospheric shell that surrounds our planet. But once, again, once we achieved escape velocity and we got into Earth orbit and we got a, a telescope up there in the form of Hubble telescope, that's when we started to see the universe in a whole new way, with a whole entirely new degree of clarity and precision, unlike anything we'd ever seen before. This totally free of atmospheric distortion. And it's because we eliminated the frictions to visibility, if you will, right? We, we eliminated the frictions to communication, uh, in this case, communicating light to the eye or light to the telescope. And it gave us this entirely new perspective on the universe. And I think Bitcoin is just going to do something similar, right? We've, we've, we're, we've eliminated the atmospheric distortions, if you will, of counterparty risk, monetary inflation, commodification, all of these things that have screwed up every monetary system historically and broken civilization after civilization. All of a sudden, we have this invention of Bitcoin that's like the Hubble telescope, right? It just, it exists in an orbit that's beyond man's reach, which is really important. So it's, it's not vulnerable to counterparty attack vectors. Uh, we all know what the inflation rate is and ever will be. So there's no unexpected inflation. Um, and it's just, yeah, just a lossless energy network, a singular set. It's just something that's it's a really big breakthrough. And then the other thing there is the price signals that it would propagate, right? Which price signals, being the coordinating force in any economy, they've always suffered from these distortions that we just mentioned, like inflation and counterparty risk and, and what have you, uncertainty in general, entropy, right? Entropy in the channel. By being an entropy-less or entropy-minimized monetary channel, Bitcoin prom like a Bitcoin-denominated world promises to allocate capital more efficiently than ever before. And that may sound kind of economic nerdy when you say uh, allocating capital, but that means putting people and assets in the right place. So they're, so they're best satisfying wants or best solving problems for the demands of market participants. So it, it will lead us to a world in where more of our satisfactions are more easily, I'm sorry, more of our desires are more easily satisfied, which is a really, really big deal. And Soon to talk to, I like this, that there's kind of two types of people there. We have the doers in the world and I have the naysayers. Uh, I would also say you could call those the tinkerers and the bureaucrats or the entrepreneurs and the legislators. And these are what distinguishes these two people um, is one is action oriented, right? Willing to fail, willing to take risks, willing to put their skin in the game. Whereas the other one is just contrarian and says things can't be done. Um, I think I flash back to the example of the Wright brothers where every intellectual in the world, there was 
basically consensus among them all that man would never fly until these two guys uh, flew in their garage. Um, so it's a really bad idea to bet against human ingenuity. Like if history shows us nothing else is that we have this amazing ability to problem solve in a way that we can't even fathom. So <clears throat> the point being, when we look at a commodity money versus something like Bitcoin, is that it's a really bad idea to try and run a monetary system based on a commodity, right? Uh, it's much better to run a monetary network, which is intended to be a system for allocating our time and our energy based on math, right? Based on a system that has inviolable rules or um, one that incentivizes fair play versus a twisting of the rules, because that would actually produce uh, the best outcome and the best mode of play, right? When rules are fixed, players are gonna play the game to the best of their ability, but when rules are bendable or breakable, you're actually creating incentives uh, to behave um, in a corruptive way or uh, an exploitative way. Um, and that's what Bitcoin is, right? It, you could, through that game theoretic lens, you could just say it's the most fair game we've ever had. It's a fixed rule set that no one can change or manipulate. And looking at a money based on commodity versus a money based on math, you know, Bitcoin is actually channeling human ingenuity in a way that causes it to improve over time um, and in a way that causes civilization to improve, whereas a commodity money is going to be channeling human energy and ingenuity into uh, the compression of profit margins on that commodity uh, and the overproduction of that commodity. So it just, it makes so much more sense to be in a true digital money with a rule set based in math versus something, uh, you know, just based on our ability to produce it in the natural world. Where it's such, such a leap forward in innovation and, and potentially civilizational advance as well that it's hard to even comprehend how big of a deal this is. And finally, we touched on the transaction fees in the Bitcoin network. So although it's a, you know, quote unquote, lossless monetary system, there is a need, there's always going to be a need um, for some resistance in the channel, which we would call transaction fees. And this is essentially the fee we're paying to the miners, right, for uh, securing the network. Um, and we could think, as Sailor alluded to, as the goddess of wisdom, you know, always introduced a little bit of friction. It's kind of like all things exist in opposition a little bit. We need something to push against to move forward. And you can also think of the transaction fees as the expense or the tax we're paying to the governors of the network, which the, the enforcers of the rules are the miners, right? So in the same way you pay taxes to the government, ostensibly to protect and preserve your private property rights, in the Bitcoin universe, we actually have to pay this tax uh, to the mining network that so that they can secure the monetary network itself and, and preserve uh, our private property rights in the time chain, the Bitcoin time chain. 
And so to argue that a crypto asset needs to eliminate transaction fees is just sort of ignorant of this fundamental truth that we need in a monetary network. Um, what we need truly in a monetary network is zero unexpected energy loss or inflation, which Bitcoin provides. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, again, that was our first session on day two. We're now into Bitcoin theory, getting into the modern age, and it's only going to get more interesting from here. So I'll see you back for the next episode.